hopefully unknown to you is usually by the time I finish preaching each week, I'm sweating a little bit underneath this jacket and these lovely lights right here. Um, I'm already sweating. I don't know if it was the clapping or what, or the singing out and stripping vocal cords. Maybe that's what it was, but I'm already there. So uh, thank you for being here this morning. And I do want to say, uh, along with Brandon, uh, happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers. Uh, hey, we wouldn't be here without you. <laughs> but we are more than just here. We are grateful and thankful for you. And that's our wives as well. We husbands are thankful for our wives and all that they do. And those of you who, as was mentioned in Brandon's opening, uh, have, like myself this year, have lost a mother. Honestly, I don't know uh, how you view that. I, I really see this as a day of celebration, just giving thanks for what God has done. To me, this is not a, a sad occasion. This is a being glad for mom occasion and being thankful for the Lord giving her influence and input and sacrifice and training into my life. And uh, I know I'll see my mom again. Quite, quite confident of that. And so that's the game changer, as we've said before. Uh, Matthew 26. Uh, we're going to move ahead uh, in our coverage of the book of Matthew this morning. Uh, we are going to be, begin the study of the trials of Christ. Uh, you'll notice uh, that I used a plural word there, the trials of Christ. Uh, a few weeks ago, we hit really what I think is the key springboard passage, and that was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what we learned there is going to continue to flow as it did last week, and it's going to continue to flow into this week. Uh, what happened there was so key. But last week, we studied in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was a band, a large crowd, presumably putting the facts that we gained from John's gospel together with the other. When we say a large crowd, probably somewhere around 600 soldiers and men coming with swords and clubs and torches and lanterns. And they made their way up the Kidron Valley to the, uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane while Jesus' disciples were sleeping. He's praying and returning to them and he can no doubt track the progress of this group coming to arrest him. And then the leader of that group was Judas, who had given a sign, a traitor's sign of the kiss that he would go. The one that I kissed, that's the one that you all need to arrest. And that was the arrangement. And he kissed the very door of heaven, but now Judas is in hell today. And he betrayed the Lord. After that, they laid hands on Jesus, and Peter drew his sword and began swinging, tried to kill a man, cut his ear off. Thankfully, Jesus healed the man. His name was Malchus. He was the, the servant of the high priest. But then after that, the Lord rebuked Peter, told him to put your sword back in its place. It's out of its place. This is not the place. There is a place for the sword. This is not it. I don't need your help. Peter, there's your way of trying to deliver me. We don't need that. And he says that, do you not know that at any moment I could just appeal to my father and he would send me over 12 legions of angels, over 72,000 angels. At any moment, he could just ask for that. Or he could use his own power. The point being that Jesus had completely surrendered himself. The, the battle was won. There was a struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane, but once Jesus yielded to that, he was not going to fight the process. He let himself be arrested, and off they go, and that's where we're going to be picking up here in verse number 57, as these that have arrested the Lord are going to now move him while his disciples have left him and fled, as he told them, and they all swore that they wouldn't, 
Guaranteed, no, 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 this will never happen. We will not leave you. Peter even says, we'll die for you. Well, they ran, cut and ran. The Lord made a way for them. You want me, let these go. And sure enough, they run away. And with that brief introduction, now we're back into verse 57. Then those, so again, picture about 600, we think. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So there's a correlated effort. The scribes and the elders, this is the makeup of the Sanhedrin. So here they're coming back into Jerusalem, and they're going to end up in Caiaphas' house. And this is not in the meeting room of the Sanhedrin. It is in his personal palace. But there the scribes and the elders have gathered. It's in the middle of the night, apparently a little after midnight. We're talking probably 1230, 1, 1.30 a.m. in the morning. This is going to begin. Verse 58, I'm going to go ahead and tell you this morning, I'm not going to cover verse 58. It goes against my nature, but we're going to couple that because he's going to pick up this story uh, here in just verse 69. So that'll be the next time we come back to this. We'll come back and get verse 58, but let's read it for now. So they've taken him to Caiaphas, and Peter was following him at a distance. And I know some take a shot at Peter for following at a distance. I really don't. I mean, I I don't know what, the man has a lot of loyalty and love and courage. He's just cut off the ear of of the high priest's servant, and here he is following along. And this wouldn't be a hard group to follow, 600 men with lanterns and torches making their way back into the city and through the city to their first stop and then to the second stop. Now again, verse 58. Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. So he makes it that far. We're going to learn from another gospel that one of the other disciples is going to actually get him inside. So that going inside, verse 58, going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So he's not actually going into the open air room where Jesus is being tried, but he's right outside of that watching how it's all going to play out. He's right there mingling among the very people that he was just ready to kill with the sword and had cut one of them, their ears off. So here's Peter right in the middle of that. He's really at high risk. Now, verse 59, let's get back to today's text. Now the chief priests and the whole council... And by the way, I want to throw in here, I don't think the word the whole council there means that every single member of the council was president. We're pretty sure some were not present. Maybe they all couldn't make it at night. And probably some were not invited strategically to this trial, we're going to call it. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council, this is a key verse, were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So let that go deep into the mind. So guys, I'm going to confess to you today, what we're going to do is probably 98% teaching. That's just the direction of this text. But if you want to know what happened in the Lord's trial and death and his passion, then we need to study these passages. So it's just going to be mainly teaching today. But verse 59 is a key one. I'm going to read it again. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking. What are they after? Why have they brought him here? They're seeking false testimony. That is a key word. But in my Bible, I don't underline a lot of words, but I underline the word seeking testimony, put him to death. That's what they're after. They're seeking after truth. No, testimony that will put him to death. That's the goal. That's why we're here. Verse 60, but they found none. They tried, but they found none. 
though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward. So here we got, now we got these two. What are they going to say? At last, Matthew writes, two came forward and said, quote, here's their testimony. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So this is what they, this man said he's able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. This is their testimony. And the high priest stood up and said, talking to Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest, again, we are only getting the highlights. What we're reading here is taking hours. Many false witnesses. Finally, they have these two. Caiaphas jumps up, presents this vehement theatrical display, trying to get Jesus to talk. The Lord says nothing. Finally, all of that, again, time is going by. Other things are happening. This is a highlight. Verse 63, though, is very key. The high priest said to him, after his silence, the high priest said to him, And I don't know how far away, I'm going to just tell you, in my mind, I'm almost picturing him fingering his face in a low growling voice. You add that in your own. Verse 63, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. I adjure you by the living, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you, in other words, the first you is singular, you have said so, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, but the second you is plural, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And there it is. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? Again, we don't know how much time takes place here. Some are no doubt immediately jumping out. Again, I'm reading between the lines. What is your judgment? Caiaphas wants to know. Based on what he's just said, you just heard it. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves Death. And no doubt some of them were ready and they started that. He deserves death. Perhaps there are some that were holding out, wanting to really hear the rest of the story and what's going on. But once he said that in their mind, he deserves death. And then I don't even know how to explain or to handle this. I will not be able to today. I'm not going to try a lot. It just speaks for itself. Then they rose and said, may God have mercy on your soul. No. They spit in his face and struck him. I have never seen this in any courtroom. They spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. We know from other gospels, this is going to explain verse 68 here, they actually end up blindfolding him. And making a mockery of a game here. And that's why verse 68 says, Some slapped him saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. 
Who is it that struck you? Which one of us hit you that time? As if he doesn't know. And they've made a game and a mockery of Jesus of Nazareth. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to begin. Um, By the way, this is just teaching this morning, but we need to get these things in our mind. Guys, if we were to read the New Testament, it actually becomes clear that Jesus had two trials. So there are two trials. I know most of you know that. Some of you may be like new to Christianity or haven't read the Bible a lot, haven't heard a lot of teaching. Understand that when we're talking about the trials of Jesus, there were two trials. Here's key. Watch. Each trial had three phases. Two trials, three phases. So we're kind of now talking about six phases. The first phase, or the first trial, is the religious trial in front of the Jews. And this is what we're looking at today. We're going to focus actually on what is the second of the three phases of the religious trial in front of the Jews. The second kind of trial is actually a civil trial in front of the Romans. So here's the two trials of Christ, a religious trial before the Jews and a civil trial before the Romans. So both are going to take place. Each one has three parts to it. Now, I'm going to go and mention on the religious trial in front of the Jews, Matthew is going to focus on the second one. He has not mentioned the first phase of the trial. And so in a moment, we're going to have to go to another section of Scripture to find the first phase of the first trial. Then he focuses on what happens at Caiaphas' house. And then there's some debate. Was there really a third phase of the Jewish trial or was it just various commentary? Matthew lends us to believe that there was actually a third, we can even call it a formality, a gathering during the daytime, a last and final Jewish trial to give the official declaration of the verdict. But there's three. You say, what was the first phase of the first trial? We'll look at that in just a moment. And then on the the civil Roman side of the trial, the Jews are going to now, after their verdict, going to take him to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. He will end up sending him over to Herod, the king, who will end up sending him back to Pontius Pilate, which will have the final official verdict, and we know what ends up happening with the Lord. So there's the six phases, and now let's go back to the first trial. We're going to study that today. Let's go back to phase one, and you'll not find it in Matthew. This is our text today, but I just couldn't skip this and just allude to it. So let's go over to John chapter 18. You have your Bible, flip over to John chapter 18. Let's go over there very quickly. Let's read that text, John 18. And it's a broken text, a little bit here, and then we have to skip, and we'll find the rest of what happened in phase one. So there's the the religious trial before the Jews is what we're studying today. John chapter 18, look at verse number 12. So he's now going to pick up the same story from the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 12. So the band, the cohort, that's where we get this idea of 600 soldiers. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus. So picture this in your mind, the Garden of Gethsemane. They arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas. This is not a contradiction of what Matthew writes. This is a complement and an addition so that we get a fuller version. Definitely what Matthew wrote happened, but this happened first. It's as though John, writing 20-some years later, wants to let everyone know under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this actually also happened. Verse 13 again. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, verse 19, strange wording here. The high priest, this is talking about Annas. The high priest, the Bible says, then questioned Jesus about his disciples. This is the first place he goes, to Annas' house. And now 
what's called the high priest Annas, is questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken. So he's questioning, tell us about your disciples. Tell us about your teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And then after he had finished that, pow. Verse 22. When he had, and this is the start of it right here in the first phase. When he had said these things, talking to Annas, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? You picture him? He's a soldier. He's standing there. Annas keeps asking about his doctrine and his teaching and his disciples. And the Lord says, I've taught and spoke openly. Why are you asking me? Ask those that have heard me speak. Boom. You're going to talk to the high priest that way? And the Lord recoils from that. That brings us now to verse 23. Jesus answered him, the soldier, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? We don't know all that happened after that. We just have this next phrase. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, the high priest. You're like, wait a minute, who's the high priest? The Bible here, John's calling Annas the high priest, and now John turns around and calls Caiaphas the high priest, so who is it? If you're taking notes, write the following. So Matthew jumps to phase two of the first trial, but actually Jesus was first taken to the house of a man named Annas because he was the former high priest. Now hang with me for the next few minutes. Annas was the former high priest. Why is Jesus being taken there? Because Annas still wields tremendous great influence and authority in the city of Jerusalem and throughout Israel as a former high priest. You say, why does he have so much power and authority? Why is Jesus being brought there first? I'm going to offer to you that he's going there first because the Sanhedrin is still assembling over at Caiaphas' house. This buys a little time. But also Annas has some things that he wants to pick up and talk to Jesus about himself. And he still, I believe, and many others, that he's the one who really is wielding the power in the city of Jerusalem behind everything. He just doesn't have the title anymore. Now watch. Here's Annas was the high priest from A.D. 6 to 15. Caiaphas is the high priest, the son-in-law, from 18, ends up to 36. We think this is around A.D. 30. So he's 12 years into his time as the high priest. In between these two, get this, the five sons of Annas were the high priest. So we have Annas followed by five of his sons and then the son-in-law. So here's what's strange. If you take this 30 years from 6 A.D. to 36 A.D., you have seven high priests in Israel. If you were to look it up, you're probably going to find an estimate that there were only 78 high priests in the 1,500-year history of Israel. 78, we got seven right here in a 30-year period. Let me ask you, how long was the term of the high priest? How long was their term? Say it. Till he dies. So this kind of hit me this week. I've often wondered, how did so much corruption get its way into Israel's priesthood? I mean, what we're reading there in Matthew chapter 26, verse 59, where all they're, they're seeking testimony to put him to death. How did it ever get to this point? Again, if you're taking notes, write the following. This is my opinion. 
I believe that part of the reason why so much corruption had especially worked its way and crept its way into the high priesthood and into the priesthood of Israel is because Rome, when they came into power, they changed the appointment of the position of the high priest to no longer be a lifetime appointment, which would garner a lot of influence and a lot of power. So they take that away, and now they replace it with an appointment where they have a lot of say over it and where they have some power and they have control. In other words, if the high priest is not pleasing them, they may not be appointing them, but they can remove the high priest. And you guys appoint another one. So here's, here's the new dynamic that is in Rome that I think probably answers why so much. What's, what has happened? This is the nation of God. This is the people of God, and these are their leaders. How did it get so corrupt? Because a position that at one time was spiritual by nature... They were a spiritual leader, has now been replaced by somebody who knows, if I want to keep my position, I've got to stay in the good graces of Rome, and now it's been replaced with a religious leader. You said, Jeff, you just said, no, no, no. A spiritual leader is now replaced with a religious leader and a political leader, someone who wants to stay on the good side of Rome. Apparently, Annas did something wrong, and Rome moved, removed him, or... He just was getting a little too powerful, so he's out. One of his sons, you're out. Another son, another son. Finally, apparently Caiaphas knows how to play the game the best, and so he keeps his position longer than any of that. But all behind the scenes is Annas pulling the strings. A couple other thoughts I want to share before we actually get into Matthew this morning, and that's the following. Annas had some real frustration and beef with Jesus. I'm going to give you two reasons. One, Jesus' teaching and preaching has really been attacking the hierarchy of the religious structure in Israel. And Annas is the one who's pulling the strings. This is his religious hierarchy, and Jesus' teaching and preaching is undermining it and attacking it, and he's tired of it. But really, maybe more than anything, Jesus has been hitting him in his cash flow. You remember those money changers and the sellers of the animal sacrifices in the temple? Those two times at the beginning of his ministry and in this same week that we're talking about where Jesus goes in and clears the temple of the money changers, those, the historians have told us that those things in the temple were referred to as the bazaars of Annas. Annas is the one who was the brain trust behind that. He's the one who's making the money and divvying out. Who He's the one getting rich on this process. Jews, when they come to Jerusalem, are going to make offerings. All the coins that are floating around Palestine and everywhere else has a man's picture on the front of it. So those are idolatry, and you better get coinage that's going to be acceptable in the temple. And so when you change your normal coinage to this coinage that's acceptable, we're not only going to exchange it at an even rate, we're going to make a lot of money on the exchange. And when you come to Jerusalem, you're going to offer sacrifices. You can try to bring your own sacrifices, but we've instructed our people to reject your sacrifices, and you have to buy our pre-approved, pre-inspected sacrifices, animal sacrifices in the temple, and they're going to make a lot of money on it. Here comes Jesus and says, you've turned my father's house from being a house of prayer into a den of thieves. You've turned it into commercialism, and Jesus cleanses it all out, and Annas is fuming. Quickly, look at verse 19 and 20 again. Verse 19 is the key. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. The last thing we'll say before we go back to Matthew. A legitimate trial starts with what? What is a legitimate trial? Doesn't it start with why we're here? Why are we here? In other words, we're all we're getting ready to have a trial. Someone's going to open the trial. We're going to start with why are we here? 
What's that? What do you say, Jeff? What are you talking about? There should be a list of charges against the accused person. There are no list of charges. It's corrupt. Look at verse 19. The high priest questioned Jesus. Hey, tell me about your disciples. Tell me about your teaching. In other words, you keep talking. Just keep talking till I find something that's useful. Well, Jesus will have none of it. I've taught openly. If you want to know what I taught, ask your people. And so the Lord doesn't fall for Annas is wanting Jesus to incriminate himself, but Jesus will not play along. And so he just shuts it down. When Annas realizes what's happening, he sends him now to the official trial, which is before Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, if you would join me in Matthew chapter 26, let's study verses 57 to 68. Notice number one this morning. This is a trial that is based on lies. This is a trial that is based on lies. Verse number 57, back in Matthew. So here's the second phase. And again, I'm not going to hit the third. We'll touch that when we get to chapter 27, verse 1. We'll hit it briefly. But this is the main thing. Verse 57, again. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Do you get the scene? Jesus, when he leaves Annas, he's been hit on the side of his face. And now he's going over to Caiaphas' house. There's this courtyard. Peter is eventually going to make his way in. John is nearby. And again, those houses there were not like ours today. Ours today, we face the street. Theirs, if you had a lot of money, your house was built inward toward a courtyard. And there would be a colonnade of columns. And behind that, a little walkway. And then there would be these open-air rooms. And so somewhere in this, they, they have a room large enough to where, in essence, the Sanhedrin has gathered, and Caiaphas is there. And here comes Jesus from the father-in-law, and now it's ready to get underway. Jesus is walking into a group of people that have wanted to kill him for over a year. Now catch that. This is going to be a little skewed. John's gospel is only 21 chapters long, but already as early as chapter 5, verse number 18, we know the Jews are wanting to kill him. Chapter 7, the Jews are wanting to kill him. So here now they finally had, this is our chance, and we're ready, and they're going to bring the trial against him. The problem is, look at verse 59, the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. There's a big debate, and this has actually raged through the centuries. Who is responsible for putting Jesus to death? Is it the Jews or is it the Romans? Who's actually the most responsible in doing this? Because we feel the need, we've got to assign blame. Well, just being true to the text, what I've studied before, I found that France's words, R.T. France, what I have there on your handout, I find them to be true. But we are going to balance this in the end. France writes the following, even though Jesus will ultimately die by Roman execution under a Roman charge as the king of the Jews. Let that sink in. It's going to be a Roman execution under a Roman charge. He's the king of the Jews. That's what's going to be written above on the cross France writes, we are left in no doubt as to whose initiative has brought this about. So I believe as you read the scriptures, if there is any assignment either way, it is very much skewed in the direction of the Jewish leaders of that day are driving this murder of Christ. As we'll see when we get there eventually, Pilate doesn't want to do what he weakly ends up doing. Verse number 59 again. Now, the chief priests and the whole council, again, I don't think this means all the council, but how big is the council? You've heard me say this before. The Jewish Sanhedrin had 70 members, and the high priest made 71, an odd number, an uneven number. 
to actually conduct business, they had to have a quorum of a minimum of 23. So we're sure they have at least 23, probably much more than that. But I would imagine there's certain people like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who were not invited to this meeting, but will probably be there in the morning meeting, the third phase. So here we have, again, odd numbers so that we have to have a tie-break vote. So we're getting ready to get into the trial of Jesus. If I had time, I would have brought in like 15 different rules that MacArthur has studied that were the rules of the day that were to govern. Hey, guys, listen. A lot of our justice system has been taken from the Bible and from the justice system of the Jewish nation. Too many for me to go over, but I'll just, remember, I'll, I'll just mention a few. They had it as a law. All trials were to be done in public. They had it as a law that every person that was accused could have their lawyer, and if you couldn't get, have, if you couldn't get a lawyer, you would be a, assigned a defense attorney. So everybody gets a defense, you get a chance, and it has to be done in public. Barclay adds to that the following quote. Now listen, here's kind of the rules that they're supposed to abide by. Barclay writes that for the Jews, quote, all criminal cases must be tried during the daytime. That's the rule. During the daytime, you can figure out why. Skipping ahead, he writes, now catch this, only if the verdict was not guilty could a case be finished on the day it was begun. Only if the verdict is not guilty. Can you do a case in one day? If the verdict's not guilty, yeah, you can be done in one day. Otherwise, a night must elapse before the pronouncement of the verdict. In other words, you could start the case and you could, in the morning, in the daytime, reach a verdict, but you can't announce the verdict as official until a night goes by. Watch again. Otherwise, a night must elapse before the pronouncement of the verdict so that feelings of mercy might have time to arise. It was their attitude, it's our job to save lives, not to take lives. Normally, that was the attitude. Obviously, we know that's not the case here. One last thing from Barclay. He writes, all evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses separately examined. In other words, kept apart so they can't coordinate their, their, their messages. You have, to, you, you have your story and you have yours and they're going to be cross-examined separately. And then if they match, okay, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And then they could make a decision based on two or three people's witnesses. So now one more time, look at verse 59. Kind of look at it. Because this sets the tone for what's really the corruption and the attitude. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony. This is Matthew saying they're seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. So Jeff, does this mean that the Jews are intentionally saying, hey, is anybody, we're looking for some liars. We want somebody to come in here and, and just tell lies about Jesus. No, guys, listen, it's, it's more nuanced than that. They're willing for it to be lies, and they're quite open to lies being made, but don't just make it obvious. We at least have to make a show like we're trying for justice and a search of truth. So it's not just like, yes, we're willing to accept obvious lies. What the text actually is saying there to us, all they're getting is obvious lies. All they're getting is false testimony. All they're getting are things that are clearly inadmissible. The claims of the people that they have. And by the way, the text says there were many. What is it? Verse number 60. They found none. Though many false witnesses and many coming forward. The problem is that their stories are obvious lies and they're contradicting and conflicting. And frankly, they're just ineffective. We can't use those things. Get better. Do better. I thought we coached them better than this. I thought we were ready. The case seems to be falling apart 
right in front of Caiaphas. So if you haven't picked it up already, guys, there is so much that is messed up in this trial. So many things. I'm going to give you just three. We could name 15 easy. Already mentioned, it's not in public. It's done at nighttime. Jesus does not have a defense attorney. But on top of that, oh, I wish you had time just to stop and think how crooked and twisted these following points are. Number one, it becomes evident that Jesus' judges and his jury are also his prosecutors. Let that sink in. Jesus' judges and jury, this is the judge, and this is the jury, they're also the prosecutors. You guys understand in a courtroom, you have a defendant and you have prosecution. The prosecutor trying to show that they're guilty. He's trying to show I'm not guilty. He or she, they're the defendant. You have defendant, prosecution, you have a judge to make sure everything's done legally. Over here we have a jury that's going to decide who's right. You got four, <laughs> defendant, prosecutor, judge, jury. Three of those four things are the same exact people. This means there is no chance to have a shot at justice. You cannot have a fair trial when you're trying to defend yourself against three people that, and you're prosecuting me. Second main problem with this scene here. They've already decided their verdict. And they've already decided the sentence. Let it sink in. The pre-trial verdict is guilty. We already know. Guilty. These are the people that are supposed to be hearing the case. They're supposed to hear cases, not try cases. They've already made up their mind. The verdict is guilty. And the pre-trial sentencing is death. You say, then what are the charges? Oh, we don't have charges yet. <laughs> but whatever the charges end up being, they have to result in guilty, guilty enough that it's going to be death. Already made up our mind. Aren't you like getting this exactly twisted? Yes, they are. Third thing. We got a lot of people coming forward, but their stuff's just not lining up. We can't find any honest witnesses. Why? There's a reason you can't find any honest witnesses. Write this down. The fact that no honest witnesses could be found proves that Jesus is innocent. There's a reason you can't find that. That's why you're having to go to false witnesses. Because he's totally innocent of any crime against the word of God or against the nation of Israel or against the country and the empire of Rome. He's innocent, but that's not going to stop them. I didn't have room for this fourth one. I wish I did, but it's too long to explain. So I want you to listen to it. Now, here's important. I'm not going to turn there. Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19. Y'all help me. What section of the Bible is that in? It's in the section called the law. Help me out. Whose law? This is God's law. So they have their laws. God's law in Deuteronomy 19. Here's what it taught. You can go look it up. If there's a trial in the nation of Israel and someone is bringing a case and they're sharing their testimony in hopes of bringing a verdict and a sentence against someone else, that person needs to be so sure and honest about their testimony that if they're found to be lying, a lying, false, malicious witness trying to get bad things to happen to someone who's innocent, if they're discovered, then whatever penalty they were trying to get put on that person is supposed to be done to them, and Israel's leaders are the ones who are supposed to carry this out. That's a deterrent. Now think about that. 
in our day, if you come in and you're ready to witness in court against somebody and the fee, the penalty that if they're found guilty is $20,000 and you know you're lying, I'm going to go in there and say this because I want to see them have to pay $20,000. Fine. I'm out for that. Okay. You're not going to do it because you're thinking if it doesn't work, I'm going to have, by this rule, by God's law, I'm going to have to pay the $20,000. Worse yet, what if what you're after is a six or seven year imprisonment sentence? You get found out, you are put in prison. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who are trying to get Jesus killed, murdered. So if they're found out, the leaders of Israel are supposed to put them, to, since you're trying to get him put to death, then the law against that, you will be put to death. But y'all see the problem there, right? The problem is that Israel's leaders are the very ones who are coaching and bribing them. And so they're not going. Do you understand that somebody should have died as a result of this trial and it shouldn't be Jesus? It should have been every one of the false witnesses and every member of the Sanhedrin who knew what was going on. All of them should have been put to death. There should have been like a lot of bloodshed as a result of this. But there wasn't. Quickly, verse 61. They finally get these two people whose story sort of matches, but it doesn't really. If you check all the Gospels. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So finally, they got two guys, after all the many witnesses, who fit the category of verse 59 in their mind. We at least need to, need to make a public display of trying to You'll go after the truth. Finally, we have these two people, and they make this charge against Jesus. So you guys help me out. You hear, they've been here with us. Yes or no, did Jesus ever predict that the temple would be destroyed? Yes. Matthew 24. If you want to look back, Matthew 24, verse number 2. That was a private conversation Jesus said to three of his disciples. They're like, oh, look how magnificent the temple. He says, I'm telling you, not one stone will be left upon another. It's going to be destroyed. Oh, by the way, was it destroyed? Yes. Jesus predicted that it was going to be destroyed. And it was destroyed. So what is the problem with this? The problem is these guys' testimony is twisted. It's twisting the facts. Where are they getting this information? All that we can come up with is that in John chapter 2, there's a group of people that are with Jesus, and they say, will you show us a sign? Catch what he says. He says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's what he actually said. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, guys, that does not sound like this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Or as one of the other gospels says, these witnesses attributed to Jesus, I will destroy this temple and then re rebuild it in three days. What they're referring to is that in Jerusalem, in a public place, will you give us a sign? Here's your sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And then back in John 2, those people start telling Jesus, it's taken 46 years to renovate this temple, and you think you can rebuild it in three days? But John tells us that Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. What's Jesus talking about? So write this down. In John chapter 2, though Jesus predicted that the temple would be destroyed in Matthew 24, in John chapter 2, he never said that he would destroy the temple. He knows the Romans will end up destroying the temple. The Roman army did this. Then what's he referring to? He's actually referring to the Jews destroying the temple, them destroying the temple of his body. It's his body that they are going to destroy, not him destroying the earthly This is the best they've got. This is their case. 
finally got two guys who said they were nearby and heard something. You ever notice how we think we hear something, but if we find a recording of it later, like, oh, we say somebody said that in a text, and we find out later they didn't actually word it the way that we said it. Yeah, well, that's the case here. But we don't want to let that stop the Sanhedrin from their mission of finding usable testimony against Christ. So this is a case that is built totally on lies. Number two this morning. As we look now at verse 62 and 63, we're going to find Caiaphas is caught in a moment of desperation. Caiaphas has a moment of desperation. I believe, look at verse 62, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? I think Caiaphas, as he's sitting there just watching witness after witness after witness, finally he gets these two that are sort of in the ballpark. It, two things are absolutely driving him so crazy that he's going to spring up and no doubt get all theatrical and start waving his arms and moving his arms and maybe even getting in the face of Jesus. We're not told. They're not in the official Sanhedrin room with the big semicircle. They're apparently just sitting all around. Jesus is standing there with some armed soldiers nearby. And then here comes Caiaphas and he stands up because two things are driving him nuts. One is these poorly coached witnesses. Can't believe we've done so poorly on this. We're blowing it. I've been waiting for this. The second thing that's driving him crazy is Jesus is not saying anything. Jesus isn't even talking. All that's being, they know these are lies and he's just sitting there listening to the lies. He's not even defending himself and engaging in conversation. And this is really driving him crazy. So what does he do? He springs up. And again, with a nice theatrical display, no doubt waving his arms, looks at Jesus. Look what they've said. And in Jesus' mind, he has to be wondering, what did they say? They've said that you said you're able to destroy the temple. And you can rebuild it in three days. What do you have to say about this? I don't know about you guys, but I read that and go, is that capital punishment? If someone did say, I'm able to destroy the temple. Is that a capital? But he didn't say that. But here's Caiaphas getting all worked up. And here's ultimately is this. What do you have to say to these things? Y'all know what Jesus had to say about it, right? One word. What do you have to say about it? Nothing. Nothing. What do you have to say about it? Nothing. I'm picturing eye contact and Caiaphas vehement and there sits Jesus calm and like inwardly his look is of integrity is saying, I know that you know that I know that you know those guys are lying. And I know that you know that I know that you know, that's not what I said. And that's just going to make him even more angry. And this is tearing him out of the frame. And so he's going to get more worked up, and he's going to become desperate in just a moment. So guys, have you ever been lied against? Have you ever had anyone say something about you that wasn't true? Just think. Keep it simple. Have you ever had someone say, you said that, or you did that, and you know you didn't? Do you just sit there and let them get away with it? Are you not nice and meek and mild? Is that what, is that what grace for you is? I don't do that. If someone's sitting there, and I know for a fact, I'm going to start defending myself. The Lord doesn't. In my mind, I'm thinking, Jesus, if you want to go free, all you have to do is refute those lies with facts, 
straighten out and correct this misunderstanding about your temple comments. Just say, whoa, 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 that's a misquote. That's not what I said. Actually, what I said was destroy this temple in three days. I was talking about you. Now, the temple is going to be destroyed. I'm not going to do it. The Romans are going to do it in 40 years. You're going to make them so bad. It's going to be you guys' fault. But what I'm talking about is you are going to destroy the temple in my body. I'm going to raise it up in three days. just want to let you know that. That's all he had to do. Or he could have pointed out this whole nighttime little thing you guys have going on here. This is a charade. And that little parade of witnesses, that's a mockery. Where's my lawyer? I demand a lawyer. That's all he has to do if he wants to go free. So we're sitting there listening to this and thinking, why is Jesus just sitting so quietly? Why isn't he demanding his rights? Why isn't he defending himself? Guys, if someone were to stand in front of you and get ready to hit you, your natural reaction is to defend yourself, and Jesus is not acting naturally. Why? We need to ask ourselves, why? What is going on? Write this thought. Jesus remained silent for several reasons. I think perhaps the top two are these, and it goes back to the Garden of Gethsemane. He is completely, why is he saying silent? He's completely surrendered to his father's will that he must die on a cross. The, again, the decision's already been made. That's why he let them arrest him. That's why he's letting these lies and false charges take place. And as the lies are flying, Jesus isn't saying anything. Catch that. Lies are being spoken. Jesus says nothing in the face of that. He's going he's to speak in a minute. When the truth comes out, then he's going to speak. But for now, he just lets it hang there. Why? Because he's already surrendered to fulfill the Father's will that he will die. And along with that, his silence is actually a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. As you're writing that note, I'll read Isaiah 53, 7. This is what Jesus is fulfilling. The Bible had predicted hundreds of years in advance he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, let this sink in, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The difference between a lamb being led to the slaughter and Jesus as the lamb of God is that he knows full well what's going to happen. That lamb being led to the slaughter has no clue what's getting ready to happen to it. But the Lord is just sitting there meekly, and so he's fulfilling the prophecies, and he's ensuring that the will of God. So quickly, watch. Jeff, why do you think Jesus doesn't defend himself? I'm not using the word can't in the sense that it's not possible. What I mean is he can't defend himself because if he does, success is so easy. It would be so easy to be successful in defending himself which would mean he would be defending himself and gaining his freedom and not dying. And if he does that, then he's not fulfilling the Father's will and the prophecies are not being fulfilled. And so he can't defend himself. He has to sit silent. You guys understand, if he starts speaking, then they're going to have to retract and back, back up and maybe try to find something to imprison him or have a public trial the next day when people are allowed to put pressure on the Sanhedrin. So he can't say anything or it will misdirect what God actually wants to happen. Now we come to verse 63. Again, write this thought. Verse 63 and 64 are the turning point of the whole trial in the Jewish phase with Jesus. This is the turning point. So here's kind of the background here. Got these two witnesses. What do you have to say to that? Nothing. Jesus says nothing. That silence is deafening in the courtroom. Jesus refused to speak. 
And so now realizing that his big opportunity he's waited for a long time is slipping through their hands and that they're blowing it, Caiaphas uses his ace in the hole. And his ace in the hole is to use his position as the high priest to put Jesus under oath and in essence to demand an answer to the following question. Look at verse 63. This is the turning point this morning. But Jesus remained silent. And again, don't know how much time gap between there. But the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's the turning point because now Jesus said to him, you see what he says in verse 64. Jeff, why is this the turning point? Catch how he worded it. By the way, I'm going to go ahead and give him credit. This is pretty shrewd on Caiaphas's part. Did you catch how he worded it? All he's getting is silent, literally stone cold silence. This guy's not saying anything. And in verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Can I rephrase that? If you are the Christ, tell us. What's that implying? If you're the Christ, then you need to speak. As the high priest, I adjure you by the living God. I'm putting you under oath. I'm demanding an answer. If you're the Christ, tell us. What does that mean? If you're not the Christ, then just keep sitting there and saying nothing. Pretty shrewd. Because at this point, to be silent could be construed as a denial that he's the Christ and the Son of God. Verse 63, one more time. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Barclay wrote something that I had not thought about. I'll close this second point with this quote. He writes that we have seen that... This is true. We have seen that Jesus repeatedly warned and enjoined and commanded his disciples to tell no man that he was the Messiah. Let that sink in. He strictly, those who know he's the Messiah, he strictly told them, don't tell anyone. How then, Barclay asked, did the high priest know to ask the question, the answer to which Jesus could not escape? How does he know to ask that question? Well, Jeff, remember, people are all the time saying, is this the Christ? Read that this week in John. Surely this must be the Christ. And others are like, no, I don't think it is. The Christ is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Shut up, dummy. He was born in Bethlehem. I, that was me inserting that. Is this the Christ? Surely this is the Christ. When the Christ comes, will he do more than this man is doing? Maybe that's what it's all based in. All this is flying around. And Jesus has never once stopped people. from. He, never once has he stood up and said, hey, whoa, whoa, come on, knock it off. I'm not the Christ. Maybe that's where he got the idea. And as he's walking in or riding into the city of Jerusalem, and all these people and all these children keep crying out, Hosanna, and they're crying out, save us, and all these things in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that's clearly reserved for the Messiah, and Jesus doesn't stop it. Is that where his question is based on? Perhaps. But I think Barclay may be right. Again, we don't know, but he says it may be that when Judas laid information against Jesus, he had also told the Jewish authorities about Jesus' revelation of his own messiahship. And that, to me, makes sense. Oh, by the way, he's told us in private that he's the Messiah. Oh, I'll use that. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So now we've been dealing with falsehoods, and now here we have the truth. And what will Jesus do with it? So again, quickly, what's Jesus' options? If his goal is freedom, all he has to do is say one of two things. 
Just say, no, I'm not. But he can't say he's not. Or again, just say nothing. If he says nothing, then they can't pin it on him for sure because he hasn't said it. So why not just say nothing? But Jesus will not say nothing. Number three this morning. Very simple point, very straightforward. Jesus' claim of deity, we find that in verse 64 and 65. Jesus' claim of deity. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. You, singular, you, Caiaphas, have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So two things are happening. Do you realize that critics of Christianity have actually said that we followers of Jesus, some critics have said that we followers of Jesus have claimed something for him that he never claimed for himself. What is that? Deity. Some people who read through the Bible, apparently only a few times, they've read through the Bible and they've come to this conclusion, no, you, you Christians... You've claimed something for your supposed Jesus the Christ. He never claimed for himself. He never claimed to be the Christ. He never claimed to be the Son of God in any special sense. So is that true? I mean, look at how he answers here in verse number 64. You have said so. You have said so. Here he has the perfect opportunity, and he says, you have said so. I mean, so does Jesus, do we claim something for Christ that he never claimed for himself? The answer is no, that is untrue. Remember in John chapter 4, verse number 26, remember this? The woman at the well says, well, when Messiah comes, he will show us all things. What did Jesus say to her? I who speak unto you am he. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they say, some people think you're John the Baptist, some think you're Elijah, some think you're Jeremiah, some think you're one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds to that and says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jesus very clearly is saying, yes, what you said is true. I am the Christ and the son of God. Yes, I am. But if that's not clear enough, and you say, well, I'm reading this here in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, hold your spot, because we're coming right back. Look over at Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, look at verse 61 there as well. Mark chapter 14, verse 61, saying, this is just Mark, very similar account. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, so here's a big question, a big crescendo, ace in the hole. Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus, here's Mark's inspired version. Mark got his information humanly from Peter. And so who was there? And also inspired by the Holy Spirit, verse 62. Jesus said, I am. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So the question, the answer is, did Jesus, do we claim something for Christ? He never claimed for himself. Oh, no, no. He very clear, knowing that his answer is going to cause his death, agrees to both parts. Both parts of that question, yes, I'm the Christ. Yes, I'm the Son of God. He doesn't say, well, I'm the Christ, but I'm not the Son of God. And he doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm not the Christ, but I am the Son of God. He says, yes, I am. I am. Are you? I am. But now what are we going to do with verse 64? You have said so. That's a little odd. I'm going to borrow one more time, I think it is, one more time from R.T. France. 
to me, this really makes sense, really clarifies this. As I thought it was a great quote I'm going to offer to you. So we have Mark. I am. But what's going on here? So apparently put the two together. You have said so. I am. But why does he say you have said so? France writes the following. This, you with me? Watch. This is a qualified affirmative. It's an affirmative, but it's a qualified affirmative in that by drawing attention to the questioner's own words, Jesus probably indicates that the proposition, are you the Christ, the Son of God? He's drawing attention to the questioner's own words probably indicates that the proposition, while correct, is not phrased as how he would phrase it. Or that he does not accept the connotation which he assumes to be in the questioner's mind. He said, Jeff, you've been talking a long time. What does that mean? All right, here's what it means. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? You said it. Yes, I am. But... Your idea of that is not my idea of that. How you're using that and how you're thinking of that in your head. I don't mean by that what you mean by that. What does Caiaphas mean? He means are you a political Christ ruler that's going to come in and overthrow the Romans like we're all anticipating? Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? His answer is to your question, am I the Christ? Officially, absolutely, yes. Am I the Son of God? Absolutely, yes. But not the way that you're using it. The way you're thinking of is not mine. You have said so. But if that wasn't clear enough, Jesus says something that is absolutely going to guarantee that he will be given a guilty death sentence by the Sanhedrin. And that's what he says after you have said so. Could have just hung that out there. You've said so. What does he mean? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? I answered your question. Say it again. And no, no, I answered your question. But he doesn't. He says the rest of verse 64. But I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Guys, watch these key terms. Son of Man, right hand of the power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus, Wearsby points this out, Jesus just took two very clear messianic passages and applied them to himself. If you want to know where they're at, it's Psalm 110, verse number 1. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, David, a psalm of David, the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant-making God of Israel, the self-existent I am God, the Lord, David says, the Lord says to my Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, the Lord Yahweh, covenant-making God, I am God, says to my Lord, my sovereign one, my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is very clearly alluding to that and applying it to himself. You will see me seated at the right hand of the power. And the other one is Daniel chapter 7. A very prominent messianic passage, Daniel chapter 7 Verse 13, listen to this. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, this son of man coming on the clouds, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass, pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus has now taken two key, two key 
messianic prophecy passages and ascribe them to himself, knowing that in that he's just done three things. You all are going to see me again, which means I will be resurrected and I will be ascending to the right hand of the power. The power represents God. And number three, I will actually be coming back again on the clouds. So put it all together, guys. Here's what's happening. Jesus has just told the Sanhedrin, you with me? You all sit as my judges tonight, but I'll promise you, you're going to see me again. And when you see me again, you will not be judging me, but I will be judging you. And I will be deciding your eternal fate. You think you're ju- Grace, if you listen. You think you're judging me, God says. Ultimately, I judge you, not you me. That's what Christ is saying. So with that in mind, do you see verse 65? Then the high priest tore his robes. Could I act that out briefly? I think it went something like this. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. You said it. And you will see me coming in the clouds of heaven. And you'll see me seated at the right hand of the power. And I can just picture Caiaphas' face. And he rips his robe in a big show of display like he's really touched and sorrowed by the blasphemy of God. And then he wonders, ha, that's it. We have him. What is your ruling? Verse 65 is his ruling. The high priest tore his, clothes and said, tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. He has uttered blasphemy. Quick question. Quick question, yes or no, is it blasphemy to claim to be the Christ and the Son of God? Say it, Brother Victor. It is not blasphemy if you're telling the truth. It is blasphemy if it is untrue, but with Christ it was the truth. This is not blasphemy. So for Jesus to say, your question, you want to know if I'm the Christ, the Son of God? Yes, I am. You said it. And to clarify, this is what that means. I'm here to be a savior of the world. And so you're going to kill me, and I'm going to resurrect, and I'll be ascended to the right hand of the power, but I'm coming back, and when I do, I will be judging you. Here's what I find so amazing. This council is so willing to hear testimony from everyone for false witnesses, but now they have a testimony of this man who agrees that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and they just go right to their judgment. What's the verdict? He's got to be guilty of blasphemy. What should they have done? They should have paused and said, do you have any evidence to prove that you are the Messiah? Which he could have said, how long you got? Get a team together. Let's really investigate this. Get you about 100 people, send them all across the land. Research my lineage. You'll find that I go back to David, King David on Mary's side. You'll find I go back to King David on Joseph's side. You'll find I've been down into Egypt. You'll find I was born in Bethlehem. You'll find that I feel over 200 prophecies. And by the time this little weekend finishes, I'll be over 300 prophecies I'm fulfilling in the Old Testament. Oh, and go round up all those people that I healed them. It will take you months to find the evidence. But you guys are looking for lies. So you won't do your homework. Which takes us to the last thought this morning. Don't even know really what to do with this, so we'll just touch on it. Displays of injustice and depravity. Display, what is your judgment? And so their final judgment is, he's guilty of blaspheming. And as a result, Jesus 
must be put to death. Verse 68 says, what is your judgment? They answered. I'm sure some very quickly and others reluctantly, but eventually arriving and no doubt peer pressure. Come on, say it. He deserves death. In verse 67, they spit in his face and struck him and slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Guys, you guys understand, this is the most dignified men in all of Israel. These are the guys who had the fanciest robes. They have the biggest titles. They're the most respected and recognized as they walk by. They have the longest tassels on their robe. These are the guys who have the biggest phylactery, these leather boxes on their forehead and on their arm that are filled with little scrolls of Scripture. They have the biggest ones because I guess apparently the bigger your phylacteries are, the more holy you are. And so these are, these are like Israel's most dignified men. Jesus says, very simple, verse 64, he answers the question, and all of a sudden he is guilty, he deserves to die, and now they just pounce on him. It's as though these guys that were pretending to be his judges, they, can't no, they can no longer restrain themselves. All the hatred and the bias just pours out of them, and they're spitting in his face. Again, I'm imagining people, you're going to die. Just one after another after another. There's been a very famous slap recently on television that we've all seen. Picture that. That was sad. Picture that. Over and over and over. It doesn't tell us how many. I'm not going to sit here and say that all the members of the Sanhedrin took part in this, but apparently plenty of them did. Over and over and even putting a blindfold on and still hitting and slapping and mocking. If you really think about it, by the time Jesus shows up to Pilate, the left side, assuming most of them are right-handed, the left side of his face has to be just absolutely swollen, bruised, cut, and bleeding, and maybe some on the, the right side as well, if there were some left-handers put in there. Just think about it. Just boom, over and over. Mocking. If you were the true Messiah, you wouldn't know. You'd be able to predict and to say who is striking you. All the while, they're fulfilling exactly what he said they would do as far back as chapter 16. But he sits silently. And so that's the trial of Christ. Let's finish with four takeaways. And I'm not even going to do an invitation. We're not going to do a contemplative, ask a bunch of questions. I'm leaving you with four brief thoughts. And as we're going through these, evaluate your own life. Takeaway number one. There's many, so we're going to narrow it down to four. Guys, please understand, this world is a very poor judge of character. You live in a world that is a poor judge of character. You say, Jeff, okay, why is that important? Hey, Christian, Christian, hey, young person, you're in school, you're trying to live for the Lord. You say, Jeff, at my job, I'm trying to live for the Lord. I'm in my family, I'm an adult, I'm trying to live for the Lord. In my neighborhood, I feel like I'm the only one. I'm the only person down at the plant. Everybody else is taking part in all this crazy stuff. Okay, if you're trying to live for the Lord and you end up getting rejected and isolated and blackballed and uninvited and you're viewed as unimportant, unvalued, hey, that's okay. This world is a poor judge of character. Let it be. This world loves blatant, vile sinners and the ungodly. They promote and celebrate those people. You don't want to be highly celebrated by this world. That wouldn't look too good on you. That would not say good things about your Christian walk. 
let this sink in. The very son of God is sitting right in front of the best people Israel had to offer. And they couldn't recognize God in their midst. Further, they not only don't recognize him, they hate him. But they don't just hate him. They bring false lies and try him and put him ultimately to death. They murdered the son of God. This world's poor judge of character, so don't worry what they say. Second thought. Being religious doesn't make you right. Being religious, nobody's more religious. These are the most religious men in all the world at this time. You understand what I just said? I don't know how many billions or hundreds of millions of people. These are the most religious people in all the world. And yet being religious doesn't make you right. Hear me. Some of the most wicked schemes have been foiled in the minds and carried out by supposed priests Supposed prophets, supposed pastors, supposed preachers. You mark it down. Say, Jeff, what should we do? Never look to any religious leader as being infallible or as anything more than a man. Never look at any religious leader as though they're infallible. Everything they say is true. No, it's not. As long as they're following the Word of God and living in accordance with the Word of God, you follow that person. But that's always the guideline. That starts in this pulpit to everything you listen on a podcast or radio or television or you read. Period. They're real religious. Doesn't make you right. Number three. This one actually is one we probably really should be fiery about. Nothing in today's text justifies anti-Semitism. Need to make that clear. Jeff, what about your first R.T. France quote about... Who is initiating all this process? That is absolutely true. But that does not in any way justify any of us of having some judgment in our mind or as has been done so many times over the last 2,000 years. People think they're doing a good thing by persecuting the Jews. And their reasoning is the Jews killed Jesus. That is sin. They're the people of God, the chosen people of God. You go against them and you're going to pay the price. You should love them. Oh, by the way, if you go against them, you are discounting the sovereignty of God. These Jews were blinded so that they would end up actually fulfilling. Jesus had to die. Somebody had to make it happen. I'm not excusing them. They are totally wrong. But the sovereignty of God was in effect. And oh, by the way, if you have anti-Semitism in your heart, then what you are actually doing is discounting your own depravity. But Jeff, they leaped on him. They were spitting and slapping him. You would do the same thing left to yourself, I promise you. You have no idea how much sin is possible in your heart and life. You're no better. But Jeff, they killed Jesus. You need to remember who really killed Jesus was your sin. Your sin nailed Christ to the cross. It isn't them. He wouldn't be there if it wasn't for our sin. No anti-Semitism coming out of grace view. And then lastly... Many people still try to judge God. Here they are judging God. But our text is clear that Jesus will actually judge us. We set ourselves up as real smart people. Is God fair when calamity happens? This doctrine of election, is God fair? How when God blesses this group of people physically, financially, in a healthy, biological way, but over here I'm struggling in my trials and God's just letting it go on and on. Is God fair? Is God good? Is God loving? Can God? 
Some people today, the guys of the world is filled with people who are misjudging God, but they come to this conclusion. I don't think he could save me simply by what Jesus did on the cross. I need to do something to help add to what Jesus did on the cross. You have misjudged the power of God. You have misjudged the love of God. You've misjudged the fairness of God. Here's my last point. We are in no position to ever sit as judges of God and his son. No, settle it down. Jesus will judge you one day. Let's stand this morning. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. Father, we close today by acknowledging several things. Jesus is the Lord. He is the judge of all. He's our judge. We acknowledge that he is the perfect son of God. He is the Christ who has fulfilled all of the prophecies that were pertinent to this point in history. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that he sat meekly and humbly like a lamb, like a sheep being led to the slaughter. Lord, we acknowledge that it wasn't because he didn't know how to answer, how to defend. He chose not to defend himself because that would have been too easy and that would have left us in hell. And so, Lord, we thank you that our Savior remained silent until it was time to declare the truth and he did it boldly. Lord, we acknowledge that he is right now resurrected and ascended and is sitting at your right hand, the right hand of you, the power of the universe, and that you have in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, you have given over to him the rulership and the kingship and the dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth so that Jesus truly has all authority in heaven and in earth at this very moment. And Lord, we acknowledge that he will one day come back and when he does he will rule and reign and all those who've rejected him they will receive judgment but Lord we thank you that we can have that judgment on our sins in this life by putting our faith in Christ so that he took our punishment on him Lord as we continue in the weeks ahead to study this one act of obedience that offset the one act of disobedience of Adam. Lord, may you draw us in. May you show us the truth. May you show us the relevance and the wonder of it. Lord, I realize today was a lot of teaching, but God, I pray you will cause us to be interested in this and to want to know how our Lord did it and see the display of our depravity. And then we see in the backdrop over it all, you just are so loving and so wise and so powerful. And you are sovereign. And so, Lord, I now present this group of people to go out and to live in the victory that Christ has bought for us on his cross. We pray it in his name. Amen.